As I mentioned last week, we always spend the first two weeks of January talking about money and stuff. But whenever we're talking about money and stuff, we're also talking about a value system. We're talking about what matters to us. It's a good way to help assess what we're living for. I don't know too many areas where we can make more of a mess of our lives to such a degree that we just don't live for the things that matter than what we do with our money. So we just want to help, and we have a lot of resources to help. So again, this weekend on the 100 level and the 200 level, there's tables out there, there's people there that can talk to you, there's books we recommend, there's resources we recommend, we have classes upcoming We can even assign to you a personal financial coach if that's helpful to get things straightened out. I mentioned last week there's a financial seminar coming up Saturday, and uh, we capped that at 150, and that is full. So that's great. We'll offer it again next January. should be a great time together. Last week, Jesus talked to us about greed. Greed gives birth to two children, and their children are named worry and fear. That's what we want to talk about this morning. You have a Bible, turn with us to Luke chapter 12. Next week we'll be back in the Gospel of John. This week, a little more from Jesus in Luke chapter 12. So Jesus shared kind of a double warning concerning greed. He said, beware, be on guard against greed. Greed literally means to have more. If we think that life is found in the abundance of money and stuff, then what will define the trajectory of our lives is more. So how much is necessary to feel significant? Answer, more. How much is necessary to feel secure? Answer, more. How much is necessary to be happy? Answer, more. So that becomes the defining uh, trajectory of our lives. Jesus said, if you live that way, you're a fool. You're going to end up living for self and not be rich toward God. That gets us to verse 22, where he says, And he said to the disciples, for this reason. Now that's one of those phrases that would be easy to just kind of skip over. But we ask, for what reason? Because living like that, is foolish, for that reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. So the warning against worry. If life is defined by more, then that's what we're going to think about. Consequently, that's what we're going to worry about. The word worry is a Greek word that literally means to be torn apart. 
we would probably say to be divided or maybe even better to be distracted. So I'm constantly distracted by worry and anxiety. That's what I think about. That's what distracts me every day. Jesus identifies two points of worry. One is food to eat and one is clothing. Of course, you have to go back and take this in the context of an ancient culture. In a first century culture, they didn't have grocery stores. They didn't have uh, pantries full of all kinds of food. They didn't have refrigerators and freezers. So life, in many ways, was literally day to day. We sometimes say today people live from paycheck to paycheck, but that's nothing like it actually was for them. They really did have to live day to day. They didn't have a pantry or a freezer full of food. So where will the food come from tomorrow and the next day and the next day? When it's identifying clothing... It's not saying they're going to the closet and thinking, hmm, which outfit should I wear today? They didn't have a closet. They had one piece of clothing, and that's what they wore. And when that wore out, then they had to come up with another piece of clothing. So in many ways, life came down to shelter, it came down to clothing, and it came down to food. So these are the things that they would worry about day after day after day. Especially so if they were constantly thinking, what I need is more. Where is more going to come from? Now today, obviously, life is far more complicated than that. We find many more things to worry about and be anxious about on a daily basis. The key to understanding what Jesus is saying is in the verse that follows, verse 21, life is not about food and clothing. Think of it this way. If you buy in to the theory of natural evolution, then there is no meaning and purpose to life. You are merely here as a product of chance. Therefore, the whole point of life is to survive. At the end of your story, what did you do? I survived. You lived 80 years. What did you do with those 80 years? I survived. If all we think about, if all we worry about is food and clothing and shelter, then all we're thinking about every day is survival. What Jesus is saying is life is not about survival. If that's all you did at the end of your life, it was a life completely wasted. Our view is that we were created on purpose For a purpose. God has invited us to be part of something that will matter forever. But we're going to miss that if every day we're distracted, if every day we're divided, worrying about things that ultimately we have to trust God with. 
I would much rather die at age 30 having lived a life on purpose than to die at age 80 having done nothing other than survive, which would be a total miss. So that's what Jesus is saying, is we have to understand life is not about merely surviving every day. It's about living on purpose But you're not going to do that if every day is filled with worry and anxiety and fear. Verse 24, consider the ravens, we'd say crows, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. So... A raven or a crow would have been considered kind of the bottom of the heap in terms of birds. The most worthless bird Jesus could use as an example in their culture. The reference to they do not have barns or storehouses is clearly connecting back to the previous story about the rich farmer who had so much he had to decide what to do with it, and all he could think is, I need to build bigger barns. That's what started this whole conversation. And he's saying, hey, take a look at the birds. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't farm, They don't harvest, they don't have barns, they don't have storehouses, they don't have refrigerators, they don't have pantries, they don't have closets. And yet, I take care of them every day. Aren't you worth more to me than them? Now, one thing that's interesting to think about is this is not a preacher coming up with a clever illustration. This is the creator of the universe. So this is the creator God in the flesh saying to them, essentially, hey, check it out. I made the birds. And they don't farm, they don't harvest, they don't store up. And yet, I take really good care of them. If I do that for them, can't you trust me to take good care of you? Verse 25, and which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Jesus is saying, It's no amount of worry changes anything. It doesn't change it. It doesn't fix it. It doesn't make it better. If they're worrying about food and clothing, they're worrying about how will they survive. And Jesus says, you can worry all day long. It doesn't add one hour to your life. We know from modern research, it doesn't add one hour to your life, but it's likely to take years off your life because of the damage it does to us emotionally, which then affects us physically. If worry could fix things, if worry could change things, 
If worry could control things, I would say, have at it. Live it up. But it doesn't. It doesn't change anything. It doesn't fix anything. It doesn't control anything. It's just a waste of energy. But it's more than that. It's a distraction from the things that matter. We're not going to end up living out our purpose because we're so distracted. We have a divided mind and we're distracted by all these things that we worry about. Research shows 85% of what we worry about never comes to pass. I find that a staggering number. 85% of the things we worry about never come to pass. A total waste of time and attention. Of the 15% that does transpire, most people face it and get through it just fine. Malcolm Gladwell has written a number of books. I find all of them fascinating. One of them is called David and Goliath. He has his own take on the story of David and Goliath, which I'm not sure is quite theologically correct. But the main idea is David, as a young man, ended up facing this huge giant. As a result of facing the giant and defeating the giant and coming out the other side alive, it created a perspective. I can do this. I can face the biggest giant the Philistines have to offer and God's got me covered. Which then creates a perspective that I can trust God. I don't need to constantly worry every day about all kinds of littler giants. When you faced the biggest giant, it changes your perspective on the smaller giants. He then goes through the rest of the book and identifies all these stories of people that faced all kinds of adversity. Things that if any of us had a choice, we would choose not to go through. Yet, when you face the worst that this life has to offer and you come out the other side, there's a sense in which it changes your perspective. You don't get so lost in all the little giants of life that people worry about. It's like, I've faced the biggest giant the world has to offer. I've come out the other side. God has been faithful. God's got this. We find so many things to worry about. That at the end, we don't need to worry about them. God's got it covered. Now think about this. In an ancient first century world, they really did have a lot of things to be concerned about. They didn't have our grocery stores. They didn't have our accommodations. They didn't have all our social problems. all our social programs, all of our safety nets. They didn't have our health care. They didn't have all this stuff that we have. If you didn't make it, the poor just died. 
So there were legitimate concerns. So Jesus is identifying, you have to trust me. But day after day, they faced real significant problems. Now think about how different that is today. By comparison, our lives are much softer and more comfortable. We have so many safety nets and so many social programs and so many ways to take care of our needs. The interesting thing about that is we don't worry less, we worry more. Research would uh, back this up that we worry far more than previous generations. The reason is because life has become so comfortable that we worry about the least little thing. We encounter the smallest of giants and we panic because we've never really faced a big giant that begins to change our perspective and help us realize God's got this covered. We go through the most significant giants of life, and in that process, we realize God is there, and God is faithful, and I can trust Him, and it changes our perspective on so many of the things in life we just don't need to fear or worry about. Jesus goes on, verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? Lilies, meaning lilies of the valley, a wildflower in Israel. If you look at them really close, they're just beautiful works of art. Again, this isn't a preacher providing a clever illustration. This is God in the flesh, the actual creator of the lilies of the valley. And he's saying, check out the flowers. Look at what I made. Look how beautiful they are. Look how spectacular they are. If I take that much care and attention with something that will just be mowed down and thrown in the fire. Don't you think you can trust me that I'll take care of you? He ends that by saying, oh, men of little faith. This is the creator saying, I created the birds. Check it out. I take really good care of them. I created the flowers. They're spectacular. Don't you think you matter more to me than a bird or a flower? Why can't you trust me? But if your days are filled with worry and anxiety and fear, you obviously don't trust me. That's essentially what Jesus is saying to them. Verse 29. And do not seek what you will eat or what you will drink. And do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. 
the nations of the world would essentially be what we would call the unbelievers. So for those people who have determined to be their own God, so these are people driven by their greed. These are people that are in charge of their own significance. How much do you need? More. They're in charge of their own security. How much do you need? More. They're in charge of their own happiness. How much do they need? More. Essentially, if that's the way you live, I would highly recommend that you worry. You should be anxious every day because you're totally inadequate to deliver the goods. You're not properly equipped to be God. You should be anxious and worried. But what Jesus is saying is for those who call God their father, for those that are truly the children of God, shouldn't it be different? Shouldn't we have a sense that God is faithful, that God is good, that God will take care of us? Shouldn't we live our lives differently? If we believe in God. Verse 31. But seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid. Little flock. For your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Rather than being distracted. We need to live on purpose for a purpose, and seek his kingdom to fulfill whatever your God-given purpose is. It's interesting that he refers to them as a little flock. I don't know that there's an animal that's more vulnerable than sheep. Sheep don't run fast. Sheep can't fight There's really nothing sheep can do to protect themselves. They're at the mercy of the shepherd. So he chooses the most vulnerable animal possible to say, there's no reason to be afraid. I got this. Whether it's the biggest giant you'll ever face, or whether it's a bunch of little giants that you've overblown into big giants, trust me. I got this. You can trust me. So rather than being distracted every day, we focus on seeking the kingdom and fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. Verse 33, sell your possessions And give to charity. Make yourselves money belts, which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near, nor moth destroys. So what does verse 33 mean? If someone was like an ultra-literalist, be like, sell it all, give to charity. But of course, If we were to do that, then we would be the poor and we would need charity. You have to take every text within its context and then in the broader context of Scripture. So, first of all, we know it doesn't say sell all your possessions. 
just says sell your possessions. If we were to sell everything and live in one big commune, for an introvert like myself, that just sounds unbearable. No offense to the extroverts among us. That's not what he's saying. So, for example, in the book of Proverbs, the Proverbs talks a lot about observe the ants. In the summer, they gather food and they store it so they'll have it in the winter. So that's not sell all your possessions. That's being wise and prudent. You also have Paul writing to uh, the believers, writing to Timothy, saying, tell the believers that have more to enjoy what they have and be generous with it. So specifically, what's he talking about here? Well, he's talking to his disciples. And he's calling the disciples to leave what they have and to follow him. Literally, leave geographically and follow him. So in order for them to do that, they have to let go of what they have. In the ancient world, they didn't have banks. They didn't have storage units. If they were going to just leave and follow Jesus, what they had would have been stolen and lost. So Jesus is saying, I'm asking you to follow me, so sell your possessions. He didn't want them to fill up a money belt with money that comes from the sale of their goods because they're just going to get robbed. That was always a high concern in the Roman world. So he didn't want him constantly thinking about that. Sell your possessions, give it to a charity, follow me, and trust me. I'll take care of you. So for us, the real question is, what is God calling you to? What would God ask you to give up to follow him? in order to fulfill your purpose. When we're greedy, we don't think that way. I can't do that. Why? Because I need more. I'm never going to be significant unless I have more. I'm never going to be secure unless I have more. I'm never going to be happy unless I have more. So when God says, actually, I'm asking you to accept my call, and it's going to cost you. So what would that mean for you? When Patty and I, uh, when I graduated from seminary, we ended up in our first church in the center of the state, in the Sand Hills. There was a period of time where I became very clear that God was saying, this is what I've called you to do. And so part of that involved counting the cost. If God is calling me to be a pastor in the sand hills for the rest of my life, and honestly, I was very content with that, then it means you would live on very little. Trust me, the pastors in the sand hills are not getting rich. So you look at your wife and you look at your children and you think through, this is the way we're going to live. You count the cost. And you decide, I'm in. I'm in. 
Now, I never would have imagined that God would lead us to Lincoln. I never would have imagined all this. The people of God have been very generous. We have far more than I ever could have imagined. But the mindset is, what is the call? And what might that cost? And are you willing to count the cost? A couple of years ago when we were wrestling with, I was wrestling with, is, is it time for a transition? Is, is it best for Lincoln Brian to make a change? What's my role in all of that? We went an entire year searching for someone that would take my place. And in the midst of all that, Patty and I are trying to figure out what would that mean for us? And I went through a period of time as a couple of months where I just felt a strong prompting from God to wrestle with if God asked us to sell everything and move on. Would we be willing to do that? And I remember talking to Patty about it. It's like, I'm having this prompting. I don't know what might be next. We love Lincoln. We love Lincoln Berean. We love where we live. In many ways, it's a dream come true. But I would never want it to be an idol. So it always has to be held in an open hand. If God said, I need you to get rid of all that in order to be called to what's next, we must be willing to do that. Now, I went through a couple of months and really thought that's what it was going to be. As it turned out, that's not what's transpired. But I think, again, it's almost like God was saying, if I ask that, Are you open to that? So you need to think through your own story. Wherever you're at in life, what might God be calling you to? And what might that cost you? And are you willing to do that for the sake of that call? Whenever we talk about money and giving, there's always people that say, I can't afford to give, to which I would say, yes, you can. Everybody can. Oh, it might cost you. You might have to change the house you live in. You might have to change your lifestyle. You might have to change the car you drive. You might have to change how much you eat out. It's funny, people that say that always seem to come up with money for other things. Of course you can. Will it cost you? Of course it will. That's the point. Why is that so important? Verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's just too easy for Christians to say, Oh, I love Jesus. And Jesus has my heart. If Jesus doesn't have your treasure, he doesn't have your heart. Don't get mad at me for saying that. I didn't say it. I'm just telling you that's what Jesus said. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. My prayer is that we would all fill our money belts 
with the unfailing riches of heaven that will matter forever. Our Father, we're thankful that you tell us the truth. Lord, we're thankful that while we still have years on this earth, you tell us the truth so we can make necessary changes to live for the things that matter. Lord, sobering, we don't get a second chance at this. Lord, for every single one of us, may we count the cost and may we invest ourselves in the things that matter and trust you. We don't need to worry. We don't need to be anxious. We don't need to be fearful. God, help us to believe with all our hearts you got this. That we might fulfill the purpose for which We were created in Jesus' name. Amen. So Kate and I both grew up in Christian homes and fairly middle-class families, but our experience with money was different. Um, My parents were fairly generous when I was growing up. I observe them giving gifts to missionaries in the families, for example, giving to the church on a regular basis. My experience was a little bit different from Dan's. We were both middle class, but I felt a large amount of guilt anytime I had to ask for money or if I wanted something. Um, And I just remember, you know, with another sibling of mine would say, oh, I want that thing. I would even tell them, like, don't don't ask mom and dad for that um, just because of this deep sense of like there isn't enough. So we got married in 2013 and we, I would say we didn't, there wasn't a ton of conversation around money to begin with, or is that wrong? I mean, maybe there was. It wasn't intentional conversation, but there were conversations that created like this atmosphere and attitude about it. And even situations that unintentionally like rehash the same pattern of my childhood where I felt like if I wanted to spend our money if I wanted even to give and be generous I would feel this guilt about wanting to do that because it was taking away from this the collective family and um, so that that was hard to break out of and you know I didn't have these strong emotions tied to money and so I wasn't very good at observing those (laughs) feelings that Kate would have about money. So I was very structured, like, okay, this is going to this, this is going to that, this is just how money is in our household. And so when Kate would maybe pose an idea that was different than that, I'd be like, oh, I can't do that. Like, no. It was completely insensitive to what was going on in the background. We'd really been living kind of paycheck to paycheck, and I remember a time when we had somehow overdrawn our account because we had spent more than we had at that point in time, and I just remember seeing that and feeling so defeated, 
And part of it being that we both actually worked at the bank where we banked. And so, you know, working at a bank, it felt like we should know how to manage our money. And clearly we don't. And so for me, that just felt very um, kind of like a wake up call that things are not okay and that things are a little bit out of control. So Brad Brestel from Berean uh, invited us to a giving conference for a, a weekend and it really challenged our view of money. And it talked about the struggle of being pulled in a bunch of different directions. But we heard stories of people who were giving in radical ways because, frankly, they're just trusting that God's going to take care of them. They weren't tied to money as their form of security. They, they knew that there was something else that they could hold on to. Um, I think wanting to do those things and wanting to be generous and give radically then created a reason to be a good steward. Like, we started to rein in the chaos around our money, but it wasn't, there wasn't like a strong motivation to rein in that chaos until there was a strong motivation around giving. And then it was like, oh, there's, there's a reason that I control my spending on eating out. It's because I know that I want to be able to give generously to the church. I want to be able to give generously to missionaries who we know. So as a financial planner, I sit down with clients and they entrust me with their resources. And what I want with that is for them to be able to accomplish what their heart desires. And in a similar way, I mean, what Kate and I have is God's. And what he wants is for my desires to align with his desires and do his work with that money that he's entrusted us with. What I get out of um, when my desires are aligned with God's is peace. Even if what we're doing doesn't make sense or we haven't even run the numbers, I just get this overwhelming sense of peace when um, we're presented with a new opportunity to give, and I know it's what he wants us to do, and it's just like, yeah, there's there's this peace in the chaos that once was.